Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 62 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today on the podcast, we have fascinating guests. He's a gentleman by the name of Fritz Gilbert. He runs a blog, a website called The Retirement Manifesto. And as you might guess from the name of Fritz's blog, it's all about retirement. Now, yes, Fritz covers some of the nuts and bolts, some of the numbers of retirement. But the thing that I really love about this conversation is about how we talk about the the softer side of retirement, the things that retirees ought to be thinking about when it comes to just day-to-day life that they probably aren't thinking about And Fritz is really trying to get people to think about these topics sooner. Now, if you're younger, like me, this might not quite apply to you yet, but I bet it applies to your parents and to your aunts and uncles, to your older mentors at work. There are important people in your life who will benefit from from knowing the kind of stuff that Fritz and I talk about today and potentially even from listening to this episode themselves. So I, I encourage you to share it if you think it's worth sharing. Now, before we get into Fritz's topics, I have a couple of retirement topics that I thought I would touch on quickly because, um, again, it's interesting stuff that even if it doesn't apply to you right now, it will someday. And I think it's worth thinking about. I saw a headline recently stating most people don't understand life expectancy data, which means they don't understand the fundamental aspect of retirement planning. How long will you live? After all, a 20-year retirement is drastically different than a 30-year retirement. So let's answer that question right here now. How long will you live? So first, we can look at the data as of 2020. The average American male born in 2020 lived for or will live for 74.5 years. And the average American female, the number is 80.2 years. So let's round those for the sake of ease. Men live for 75 years. Women live for 80 years. But there's more to this question today than just that plain data. Because let's imagine you're 55 years old and let's say you are planning your retirement. How long should you plan for? Well, we can go back and think to those numbers before, 75 for men, 80 for women. So if you're 55 today, then men should plan for a 20-year retirement. Women should plan for a 25-year retirement. Maybe you want to add a few years on there as a buffer, because after all, you know, if those are the averages, half of people live longer than average. So maybe you add five or 10 years of buffer, and that's how you get to your retirement timeline but that's actually not quite the right approach. Now, I like the buffer aspect of it, but if you're 55 today and you think that the average 55-year-old lives to 75, that is not the right way to interpret this data, and it's important. So the average death ages, 75 and 80, we said, they account for all deaths at all ages, including all of the unfortunate deaths that can occur before the age of 55. Once you've hit age 55, you've already avoided all of those premature deaths. You've avoided all the deaths that drag the average down to 75 and 80, meaning that your most likely age of death will actually be above average. You've already avoided the premature deaths before 55. 
And that fact, that statement that I just made, that's backed up when we look at the Social Security Administration's actuarial data set, and it helps us see this truth in action. The average 55-year-old man today will live another 24 years to age 79. That's four years above the the average that we talked about for all males. The average 55-year-old woman, she'll live another 28 years to age 83. Again, that's three years above the average for all women. So maybe you haven't planned much and, and now you're sitting down. Let's say you happen to be listening to this podcast. You're sitting down at age 65 to figure out your retirement. 65-year-old men have, on average, another 17 years of life left, and women another 20. They'll live to 82 years old and 85 years old, respectively. So that's huge. Every year matters in retirement planning. The difference between dying at age 74 versus 79 versus 82, that's a really big difference. And as we already talked about before, you might live longer than those averages. So as a really quick example, The average 55-year-old American man has the following, we'll call them death age probabilities. There's a 64% chance that that man will live to at least age 75. If you're 55 years old, you have a 64% chance of living to age 75. What do you think the probability is living to age 80? The answer is 48%. How about to the age of 85? The answer is 30%. And finally, For a 55-year-old man, the odds of living to age 90, that's about 13%. Now, 13% is small, but that's nothing to ignore. That's a 1 in 8 chance. 1 in 8 55-year-old men will live till age 90. So, in short, the lesson here is that you can't look at the average life expectancy for all people. Instead, you have to look at the average life expectancy of people your age and then probably bake in some conservatism on top of that because there's a 50% chance you'll live longer than the average. This is just a simple but vital financial planning tip. And now on the topic of financial planning for retirees, we're going to pivot to a recent listener question sent in by Lawrence. Lawrence wrote, Dear Jesse, my wife is 70 and I'm about to turn 70. And we've been retired for eight years. And even with the tough market in 2022, our portfolio is up 40% from when we retired, from about 3 million to 4.2 million. I can't bring myself to spend more. We spend exactly what we want to spend. But now I'm wondering, what if we die with these millions instead of putting them to some sort of good use? So ask any retiree or any financial planner who works with retirees, they will tell you that most retirees struggle to change from a saver to a spender. They've built decades of strong savings habits. They have years of frugality and budgeting and buy and hold investing. And it's hard to flip that switch overnight from saving to spending. So as a real example, there's a great data set that Michael Kitsis published to show retiree savings that actually went up during the 2000s. The 2000s were this famously bad time to be invested in the market. And certainly some people who were invested did see their accounts go down throughout the 2000s. But what this data set shows is that especially for people kind of at the middle to the upper end of wealth brackets, they gained money during the 2000s. They they saved more than they ever had saved before. Now, 
Another part of this particular chart that's scary is that the bottom two quartiles or the lower 40% of retirees have zero assets, have zero assets. They are living exclusively off of social security and their pensions. The third quartile, so that's from people from 40% to 60%, they have less than $100,000 in assets. Those two stats right there are pretty scary and pretty sad. So a lesson that I take away from this that I hope to impart on you guys is to save early, save often, and to stay the course. So we have to go back. Why is it the case that at least for the top 40% of people in this study, their portfolios grew during some of the worst times in market history and that for the average retiree, portfolios tend to grow in retirement? Well, the reason is actually pretty simple. It's because most of the time, standard retirees and retirement planners are vastly over-saving. They're saving too much and they're spending too little. For example, we can take a look at the 4% rule. The 4% rule was created to avoid uh, retirement failure. Running out of money is retirement failure, and that, we can all agree, is a pretty bad thing. But here's an absolutely crazy stat. The 4% rule, over the course of uh, historical back tests, has been shown to more likely quintuple, or 5x, someone's retirement portfolio than to deplete it by $1. That's just crazy. The, the average retiree using the 4% rule, if they retire with a million bucks, they're more likely to die with $5 million than they are to die with less than $1 million. That 4% rule, and I've said it here on the podcast before, it is outrageously over-conservative about 90% of the time. It just so happens that in like 2% of the time, the 4% rule has actually been shown to be too aggressive, which that's a whole other different conversation about why the 4% rule is a, a coarse tool, but certainly not a fine tool. But anyway, let's get back to today's topic. The required conservatism to avoid retirement failure, that is vital in about 5% of test cases. If you saved less, so if you use, say, a 5% a rule, where you, you retire with 20 times your annual spending needs instead of the 4% rule where you retire with 25 times your spending needs, you are more likely to fail. You're more likely to fail if you use the 5% rule instead of the 4% rule. So for better or worse, retirement planners' first rule of thumb is the 4% rule. And what we're talking about here today with Lawrence, with his question, Lawrence, who's now lived off of retirement funds for eight years, and he's seen his nest egg grow from 3 million to 4.2 million. He's an example of that over conservatism, but he's the example of someone who maybe could or should have been using the 5% rule or the 6% rule instead of the 4% rule. Or, or at the very least, uh, Lawrence could have retired a few years earlier and used the 4% rule to great success. But now, as we sit here eight years into Lawrence's retirement, it's too late for that. It's time that Lawrence can't get back. So let's pause that little diatribe for now and really go to address the meat of Lawrence's excellent question. What if he dies with these millions of dollars instead of putting them to good use? Now, first and foremost, Lawrence should go work with a fiduciary, CFP, financial planner, and an estate attorney. Lawrence should discuss his options and his preferences for this money while he's alive but then also after he passes away. Questions like, how do you want your assets to positively change the world 
who in your life is most important to you and do you want to leave some of your assets to? Are there any charities that you want to leave assets to in some way or a bequest to your university, to your alma mater, and to uh, leave a scholarship to future young, bright minds? These are the types of questions to ask and then answer. The next point I would make to Lawrence is to not let society force you into spending your money on yourself. If you derive joy from helping others, I'm sure there are terrific philanthropic uses for your money uh, while you live. The next one, Lawrence, if you have children or grandchildren, remember Warren Buffett's thoughts. Leave them enough money so that they feel they could do anything, but not so much that they could do nothing. In other words, if you leave your kids, say, $500,000 each, that's enough money that they could do a lot of interesting things with it. But that's not enough money so they could sit around for the rest of their life and do nothing. Leave them enough money so that they would feel they could do anything, but not so much that they could do nothing. And the next one is something I call running the McDonald's tests on your favorite things. So the McDonald's test, real quickly, as a quick aside, it comes from a story of a client who I'm actually working with at work where one of his favorite things to do is uh, literally to go eat burgers and fries. It's like his favorite meal. We were talking about it one time and this gentleman is a multimillionaire. So I asked him, I said, oh, cool. Are there any like, you know, great burger and fry restaurants that you've been to recently? And his answer was, no, not really. I just, I like McDonald's. And so my response to this gentleman was, well, that's totally fine. If, if you like McDonald's, if you like the flavor, if it's convenient for you, I mean, I'm not going to talk you out of it, but you're sitting on a couple million dollars. So if you want to, you could take a road trip to any burger and fry restaurant in upstate New York and spend an afternoon, spend a weekend getting there and go have a terrific five-star burger and fry meal. And maybe that would actually be more enjoyable to you than McDonald's. So this gentleman thought about it. We ran the numbers and I showed him how it was totally within his financial plan to do so. And it ended up being a terrific recommendation for him. He really enjoys the fact that now he takes these road trips on a regular basis to go eat burgers and fries all over upstate New York. So I call that running the McDonald's test, where you take something in your life that you really enjoy and you ask yourself, do I have the financial means to actually pursue this passion even more than I already am? So to Lawrence, who asked today's question, to Lawrence, who is worried about dying with millions of dollars, run the McDonald's test on your favorite things in life. Trust me. So one of the principal duties of financial professionals, albeit a subjective and hard to measure duty, is to imbue confidence in their clients to spend money. It's called cash flow planning. When you do cash flow planning for a client, you're telling them that they should be confident in a certain amount of income. But for retirees, it's really a certain amount of expenses that they'll be making throughout their retirement. You should spend money. You should enjoy the fruit of your labors. You should trust the math. You should trust your portfolio and enjoy your life. Now, if you do that and you still have lots of money left over while you're alive and while you're mentally spry, you need to determine what you want to do with that leftover money. So Lawrence, work with a CFP, work with a state attorney, and enjoy these golden years of your life. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. One of the more common questions I hear is, Jesse, what do you like and use? Books, blogs, podcasts, even banks and brokerage firms. What are your recommendations? So to answer that question, I put together a webpage. You can check it out at 
bestinterest.blog slash recommendations. Again, that's bestinterest.blog slash recommendations to check out how I'm improving my financial life. All right, so now let's throw it over to a really fun conversation with a really fun guy, Fritz Gilbert, who I mentioned before. Fritz Gilbert is the creator and author of The Retirement Manifesto, widely considered one of the best retirement blogs on the internet and winner of numerous awards and accolades. Fritz also wrote the book Keys to a Successful Retirement, which is a top-selling financial book on Amazon. I really enjoy Fritz's ability to cover both the, the hard financial topics, but also the soft lifestyle topics for his retiree readers. And I'm really excited to share Fritz, his fun viewpoints here today on the Best Interest Podcast. Fritz, I was listening to you on a, a recent Morningstar podcast, excellent podcast. We will throw a link in the show notes for everybody. But Fritz, you mentioned a statistic that had to do with how pre-retirees tend to focus on financial matters, but that post-retirees end up thinking a lot more about lifestyle matters in retirement. So I'm just curious, how did you first learn about that? And, and when you first learned about it, how did you react? And and then what exactly are the the main issues that you think that post-retirees really are thinking about? Yeah, wow. What a great lead-off question, Jesse. First of all, happy to be on your show. I love your content and uh, I, I really enjoy being on. But, oh, you know, it, you. It, it, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I've gone through the retirement transition. I've been retired five years now. I've been writing for eight. So I started writing three years before I retired. And at the time, like everybody else, I was very much focused on the financials. And if you read the first year of my posts, almost every one of them were financially related, right? It's, it's what you're focused on. You know, in your working years, you're just, when can I retire? Don't obsess on when you can retire. Enjoy the journey as well. You know, that's my biggest caution to the FIRE community, which I, I was a member of, I'd say. I was 55 when I retired, so I was kind of late FIRE, but still FIRE. Yeah. And, and, and the one concern I have with that lifestyle is you can get so obsessed on when can you achieve FIRE that you forget to enjoy the present. So that's just a, a, a word of recommendation or, or advice, I guess, to the younger folks that are out of journey. But regardless, you're focused on the financials. You have to be because you know you're not going to be able to retire until you get the financials in order and you're looking at the retirement calculators and you're trying to figure out the you know 4% safe withdrawal rate and all that kind of stuff. That's natural. And what I say is that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So when did I first discover that reality that you have to focus on the non-financial as well. And I would say that was probably about a year or two before I retired. I'd been writing for about a year, paying a lot of attention to the topic, doing a lot of research, writing a post every week. And it, the more I read from people who had traveled the journey before me, I started seeing more and more about the importance of the non-financial stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, it, you, it takes a while to be convinced. But I listened to the stuff I was reading and I, I applied it and I started writing posts about the non-financial side. You know, we moved to a cabin up in the mountains. So we had a pretty major lifestyle change and we started thinking about it quite a bit. About a year before I retired, we really knew, okay, we're good to retire. June of 2018, you know, this was like in 17. Okay, June of 18, we're out. We know we're good. But I still had a year to go. So rather than just continue to refine the numbers, they're, they're kind of what they are at that point. Yeah, you're still investing. You're looking at returns. You're trying to build up your cash, you know, for the transition. But essentially, 
it doesn't get you a lot more benefit to continue to grind on the numbers. So I spent that last year starting to really focus on the non-financial stuff, which we can talk about. But what it really hit home is as I went through my retirement transition, it was incredibly smooth. And I started reading more and more research about the highest correlation they found for people that have a successful transition to retirement. It's a huge transition. You know, don't underestimate how big of a change it really is. And a lot of people struggle with it. But the research has shown that the people that have the most successful transition are those that have spent the most amount of time planning and not just planning on the financial stuff, but they've recognized the need to focus on this non-financial area. So that's really, and that's what my book's all about. It's the you know keys to a successful retirement. And it really focuses on the things you should think about as you're preparing for retirement that will help you have a better transition. It's a hugely important topic and it's not something most people realize. And eventually you will, right? If, if you don't think about it at all, you hit retirement, you'll go through what, what I like to call it. Eric Weigel came up with the term or he used it in his book, the messy middle. You will have a, a rocky transition. It's not uncommon. And that's what that article in the, the Morningstar podcast was about these blind spots that we discovered. Right. And a lot of people struggle with that transition. And most of the reason that they struggle is because they didn't realize the importance of this non-financial stuff. You figure it out in time, but it's a lot easier if you think about it on the front end. Yeah. You, you just mentioned a term there, Fritz, blind spots that I, I want to come back to and see if there are any specific blind spots that, that you and Eric have found. But it is, it's, it's an interesting concept because I think of it, I, I'm 33, so I've got some time ahead of me. But I think of it as, you know what? I know what a weekend feels like. Transitioning into a weekend isn't a big deal. I've taken some even two-week vacations before. Maybe a little planning goes in there, but really transitioning to a vacation, then transitioning back to work, not that big of a deal. So it's like, what, what would the big deal with retirement be? All it is, it's, it's a transition into free time. I, I don't see what the big deal is. I've done it before, but obviously there's, there's more to it, right? Yeah, it, it, and how do you summarize it? I, I talk about how it's kind of like marriage or having a kid or you know some of these major transitions in life. You can't really appreciate it until you've actually gone through it. And I was mm -hmm. obsessively curious about what it was going to be like. I, I really was. Now I'm retired five years, and I guess... The biggest thing I would say is nothing at all like a vacation. And, and the reason is because it never ends. You know, vacations, you're always thinking about going back to work. You know, it's a little break. So you're really enjoying it. You're savoring every minute because, you know, you've been looking forward to this for six months and you booked your flights, you know, six months ago and blah, blah, blah. But retirement is day after day after day after day after day after year. You know, it's years and years of this. Mm -hmm. And initially, yeah, it's like a vacation. And there's that honeymoon period where it's just euphoria. You don't have the alarm clock. You're ecstatic. You know, I never have to go back to work. This is amazing. And that's really a nice period. And almost everybody experiences that. But when the reality sets in is, is after you've been retired, it, it varies for most people. I'd say six to 18 months is pretty much the norm. And you start realizing this is my life now. You, you start losing appreciation for the freedom. Losing is probably too strong a word, but you start recognizing that there's more to life than just being free and you have to find those things that really keep you motivated and and you know feel good about yourself and productive and a lot of those things you get from work that you don't realize you're getting from work you start missing and you start realizing how important they are in your life and that's when that quest to kind of fill in these non-financial areas really becomes important because it's those areas that really turn it into a a really enjoyable phase of life. I'm, I'm loving retirement, best years of my life. But it's, but it's because I've been very 
diligent in, in the way I approached it. And all the research I've done since, probably by accident as much as anything, but the things I've focused on have turned out to be pretty important things to help with the transition. Fritz, I was telling you before we recorded that I've, I've listened to maybe six or eight podcasts that you've been on in the last, in my last week, podcasts that you've been on over the last couple of years. And for what it's worth, it sounds like you love retirement. Your, your, your joy comes across in your voice on every podcast. But I think it's important to emphasize that what you had just said is that it didn't come without work. It didn't come without preparation. You, you had to sit down and think about it, prepare. And, and maybe now we can transition back into some of the blind spots yeah. that many retirees have going into retirement. Blind spots that it sounds like, for the most part, you thankfully prepared around and, and they weren't blind to you. But what are some of these common blind spots that can affect retirees? Yeah, and, and probably a little bit of context would be would be of value, I guess, to the yeah. listener. Eric approached me. He, he's another blogger, and he's, he's an author. He's written a book, and he's more of a financial coach, I guess, for retirees. And he said, hey, I'd like to do a survey. You've got a big audience. Can, can we reach out to your audience and do a survey? And what his goal was was to get a population of pre-retirees and a population of retirees, post-retirees, ask them the same questions and compare the results. I was like, I love that, Eric. What a great concept. And, and let's see where they differ, you know? So there's a whole article about it. There's, there's, a, there's actually like a 50-page study that you can link to on my blog. If you just look up blind spots on my blog, you'll find it. You can put a link in the show notes. We'll do. Yeah, we um, will link that. Yeah, but the two biggest takeaways, if I think about it now without looking at the study, but just what's stuck in my mind now, you know, several months after we've completed the work. The first one is the... Um, reality that a lot more people struggle with the transition than they think they will. If you ask pre-retirees, and I'm, I'm rounding the numbers, I don't know the exact ones, I could look them up, doesn't matter. Roughly 25, 30% of pre-retirees think, oh yeah, it's going to be a pretty major transition, you know, whatever. But let's say 70% are like, yeah, it's going to be a piece of cake or, you know, I'm not worried about it. Hmm. Compare that to the people that have gone through the transition and over 50% of them say, boy, that was a tough transition. So, and that goes to my earlier point, recognize how big this transition really is and, and prepare for it because that's one of the things that people that haven't done it yet tend to un underestimate how big of a change it'll be in your life. The second one I would say that sticks in my mind, and this goes to the non-financial benefits that you receive from work. And people don't tend to recognize this. You know, you think about your paycheck. Oh, my paycheck's going to be over. I've got to be financially independent. Absolutely true. But there are also probably five or six non-financial benefits that you get from work that most people don't really think about. One is, obviously, you got your relationships at work. You know, even, even when you're working from home, you're still on Zoom calls. You have a relationship. You're texting your coworkers. You know, you're, you're involved with other people every day, common interests. You're working on the same projects, whatever. You've got a sense of purpose. You've got objectives from your boss. You've got deliverables. You get achievements. You, you nail a presentation. You feel good about it. You get some feedback, maybe. You know, it's rewarding. You have a sense of identity. You know, what do you, what do, you do, right? Everybody asks. It's, oh, I'm a X, right? You, you relate to what your job is as your sense of identity. It's those types of things. And the, the biggest blind spot that surfaced in the, in the study was... Not too many people that were still working expected that they'd miss their coworkers. You know, maybe again, 20, 30%. But if you look at the people that actually retired, almost 60% actually missed those relationships. And as much as you think, oh, we'll keep in touch, the reality of it is you really don't. You might have one or two particularly close people that you keep in touch with a little bit, but everybody says, oh, we'll keep in touch. And nobody does, right? It's just a reality. 
So the importance of building relationships with people outside of your workplace that will continue post-retirement is probably one of the biggest lessons that I took away from the study. Right. The social aspect, the identity aspect, the positive feedback aspect. But that is loneliness in retirement is, is kind of what you just touched on there, that we get these friendships, these social bonds at work that oftentimes disappear in retirement. And transitioning from loneliness, there's actually some interesting data when it comes to depression in yeah. retirement, which I found surprising. What What is that data? Yeah. And, and this is kind of surprising. I, I wrote about this when I was getting ready for the transition. I think I've written three posts about depression in retirement. My most recent one was a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was why 28% of retirees are depressed. And it focused on some studies that were done that really tried to quantify it. And 28% is a pretty legitimate number, yeah. which is high. You know, if you look at right. somebody asked me, well, what's, how's that compared to the population as a norm? I was like, oh, geez, I missed that one. I should have put it in the post. So I did some Google searches. Looks like it's about maybe 10%. So yeah. 10% of the general population are depressed. 28% of retirees are depressed. That's a huge number, right? Yeah. And I think the main reason is, well, the, one of the biggest factors, which is kind of outside of your control, is those that are forced into retirement earlier than they planned tend to have the highest rate of depression. So, okay, what are you going to do about that? You could argue it. But the, the takeaway to me, and I put this in the article I published today about why 72% of retirees are happy, right? In that study, I included, or in that article, I included a study that showed 56% of people are forced into retirement earlier than they planned. Huge number. So you're naive if you think I can work till I'm 65, I'll be fine. I don't have to worry about it. 56% of people don't get to the date that they wanted to get to. Huh. So the takeaway from that is be prepared earlier than you have to be just in case. And if you still love your job and you want to keep working for a while, that's fine. But to be dependent on your job and suddenly lose it can be a real trigger into depression in, in retirement. The other thing that I found, an article I published today, was the nine traits that the happiest retirees tend to have in common that aren't as common among the depressed retirees. And those are things like we're talking about now, but a lot of them are focused. There were three that were financial. And from the top of my head, it was having at least $500,000 in assets, having your house paid off and having multiple sources of income. Okay. Those are, those are, you know, we've talked about those, but to me, the more important ones were the six non-financials and they were actually shown in some studies to have a higher correlation to retirement happiness than your economic situation. So again, it goes back to the importance of these non-financial ones and the, uh, the characteristics of the happy retirees were um, a sense of curiosity. You know, they're, they're really willing to try new things. They, they, they are exploring a sense of purpose. A lot of reference to Wes Moss's work, which he's done a lot of work on happiness and retirement. And, you know, the difference between happy retirees have an average of 3.6 core pursuits and depressed retirees have like 1.9, right? So it's, it's huh. double the number of things that you're, you've found that keep you engaged. Friendships, relationships, we talked about that. The happiest retirees have close to four close friends. The unhappier ones have less than two. So, you know, it, it's really good research and it, and it helps people that are planning for retirement think about what are the drivers that I need to be working towards in addition to the financial elements to maximize my chances of falling into the happy camp, as I call it. Fritz, let me just take a step back because I'm thinking to myself, and I'm thinking of some of our younger listeners, when you were saying earlier that a lot of times it was 56% of retirees actually were forced to retire earlier than they desired to, what are some of those forcing functions? Is it 
Is it a mean boss who pushes them out or is it, is it something else? It, well, there's, there's, I would say three main things. One is, you know, downsizing. People go through downsizings at work and that happens, unfortunately. So that, that's a percentage. That's kind of the one you'd think of immediately. But the other two are mm -hmm. a bit more surprising. And one is, and they're both kind of related, they're, they're health related. One is either you've, you've got a parent that you need to take care of that is taking more time than you can afford. So you have to quit to take care of a, a spouse or a, a parent. The other one is personal health. You know, you get into a health situation and you're, and you're no longer able to work. So those three probably account for 80, 90% of the reasons. Unfortunately, the downsizing one is a risk to everybody. You know, you could argue right. the health one is somewhat inside your control. Yeah, I know you focus on exercise. I focus on exercise. Do what you can do. And the reality is most of us, as you get into your later working years, have parents that are getting older and a certain percentage of parents require a lot of care. And, you know, some kids, just my, my wife, she was a stay-at-home mom, fortunately, but she ended up giving full-time care to her mom. We were lucky that we were in a position to be able to do it. Some people aren't so fortunate. So, yeah, th those are probably the biggest factors. And again, let me, let me address your earlier, your earlier, you started talking about younger listeners. And, and one thing I would encourage younger listeners to do on the whole topic of retirement is focus on maximizing your savings rate, automating everything. And every year that you get a raise, let's say you get a 3% raise, increase your savings 2%, you know, in your 401k or in outside mutual funds, whatever, but schedule that so that it's automated and it happens on the same date that you get that increase in pay. So what happens? Okay, you get 1% more in your take-home pay. You feel like you got a little bit of a bump. You know, feels pretty good. But you just increased your savings rate by 2%. So if you do that year over year and force those savings and live on the rest, minimize debt, obviously, you know, the pyramid of how you prioritize your money, you know, pay off your debt, build your emergency fund, those are all good pieces of advice. But the biggest thing is find a way to gradually over time, increase your savings rate every year and just don't worry about it. You know, track your net worth once a year. That's all I did. And it was fine. Track your net worth. Don't obsess on this stuff. Enjoy life as you live it and, and just give it time because when, you know, you got anybody can retire in 15 years. Mr. Money Mustache got a great article on that, depending on your savings rate, but that's 15 years, right? That's a long time, even for yeah. a more aggressive saver. Don't spend your whole life in your late twenties, early thirties through your forties, thinking about retirement, enjoy it now, enjoy your family, enjoy your kids, take nice vacations every year, use all your vacation time, right? That was one of my big things that I was working. So many people burn, burn vacation days. Don't do that. They give them to you for a reason. They don't, they, you know, they don't care. Take them. It's self-imposed if you feel like you can't take your vacation. So take it and, and enjoy life and, and save as much as you can save, find a way to increase it and, you know, wake up in your late forties and start looking at the numbers. I like that for a couple of reasons, Fritz. One reason why is I, I'm slowly making that transition personally from, from if I look at myself five years ago where I was, you know, looking at my spreadsheets or looking at my budget multiple times a week, yeah. you know, tracking, paying attention and tweaking savings rates, rerunning spreadsheets to see if I could increase it here or there. It did get a little obsessive. It got a little tiring. And in the long run, did it give me any benefit? Not really. Yeah. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do about what the stock market is doing. All we can do is choose to whether we whether we buy on a monthly basis or not. I mean, that's all the decision making we have in our power. But the choice to increase your savings rate every time you get a raise, that's a phenomenal choice. It's well yeah. within your power, but it only comes up once a year. So, yeah. so there's no need to obsess over it really any more frequently than, sure, if someone wants to do, I mean, 
personally, I do uh, end of the month. I'll yeah. just look at my budget, make sure everything's good. We're good to go. But if someone said quarterly, a couple times a year, once a year, whatever, that's fine. Yeah. As long as you're, it's somewhere in the background and you realize that at some future date, you're going to kind of sit down and put in some work. Yeah. And then, you know, in fairness, I think probably most of the people that listen to your content, listen to, you know, read blogs, et cetera, they, they, they pay attention to this stuff. The, the caveat I would say is if you don't pay attention to this stuff and you've got a big debt problem and you can't get out and you're, you know, you're spending more than you make year on year, month on month, you're just digging yourself deeper. Those aren't the people we're talking to, right? These are people right. that are responsible, that are, that are working their way through the journey and they're saving and they're being responsible. And, and those are the people that don't get caught up in the obsession about it. It's easy to do. I, I did it myself at times. And, uh, and I learned, to your point, other than keeping an eye on your asset allocation, you think of a bear market. A bear market at your age, best thing that could possibly happen. You want the doubt of right. 90%. You want it to <laughs> crater, right? It would, be, it would be death to me, but it would, be, it would be nirvana for you. You want a bear market, right? So you got to get your head out of thinking about, oh, my net worth, my net worth growing. No, you just want to buy, 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 continue to buy every month. I had a couple of bear markets later in my career. And I, I doubled down. I said, you know what? I can, take, I can take four months and just jack it to my savings because I know the market's really down right now, right? You've got to counterintuitive against that fear. A bear market is a great thing. A, a big long-term rally is not really what you want right now. You want to buy cheap and give it 30 years until you need it. So. Totally. I, I, I was trying to preach that to the, all the, you know, the 24-year-olds out there who in 2019 were so excited yeah. that their two-year investment <laughs> track had had such positive returns. And it's, yeah. it's good that they got enthusiastic for investing. It's good that they could see that simple investing strategy into index funds was yielding these big returns for them. But it was also too important to point out, A, this is pretty abnormal. You know, yeah. 20% a year for four years in a row is pretty abnormal. And then B, if you actually zoomed out to the time you retired, this wouldn't be what you wanted in terms of when you were buying. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting, Fritz. So you're a big DIYer. Yeah. I was and still am a, a really big DIYer, so much so that now I'm kind of doing some of this work professionally and, and helping people who don't want to be DIYers yeah. to some of their financial planning work. But I understand that at least once, kind of as you were gliding into retirement, and it might have been more than once, you did sit down with a CFP simply to double check some of your numbers, some of your thought process. So I'm yeah. just wondering, what was that process like for you in terms of the decision to sit down with a CFP and just get everything double checked? And then actually logistically, what was it like, you know, to have that help? I have been a DIYer my whole life and, I, and I've always been a, I call it a passionate hobbyist in this stuff. You know, I, I, back when they yeah. had real magazines, I used to read Money Magazine and Kiplinger's and all, you know, all the print magazines. I mean, I've studied this stuff for, for decades now. So I, I was knowledgeable about it and I just enjoyed it as a hobby. And that was fine, you know, for the first well, I, I started 22 and I retired at 55, so 33 years. And for you know the first 30 years, that was fine. It was sufficient. My reason for reaching out to a CFP as I got close to finalizing my decision on when to retire was, you know, let's be humble and let's not assume we know everything. You know, CFPs and professionals that do this for a living, they see hundreds, if not thousands of clients. They They have a process. They they go through it with a different set of perspectives than, than you and I possibly can. There's value in that, right? And, and having somebody look over what you've done. And, and I should say, earlier in my career, we had, a, we had a thing with Vanguard, a 401k, and you could do a once a year checkup with a CFP. So I did that a couple of times, and they were always like, yep, you're on track, you're doing well, you know, answer allocation looks good, savings rate looks good. You know, the basic stuff was, was good. 
But my concern was the transition from accumulation and building your wealth through the career into positioning yourself for the, for the withdrawal of those assets in retirement, which is something obviously I'd never done before. So it wasn't an area that I had experience. It wasn't an area that I'd gotten feedback from Vanguard that I was in good shape. And I felt like having a guy that walked many people through this transition is worth the effort. So the, the process was good. You know, they, they have, I think all of them kind of have the same process. You know, you send them all your assets, you send them your spending estimates. You know, they work through their, they always have kind of a little presentation they do at the end that shows if you're on track or whatnot. And my biggest thing was, am I missing anything? I, I knew I could retire 54 or 55. And I was leaning towards 54, but I also kind of had in the back of my mind, I wouldn't mind doing one more year just to kind of pad everything. I'm a conservative guy. You know, I always estimate a little high on my expenses and estimate a little low on my returns. I always try to get some padding in there. So having a, a professional look at it and say, you know what? You can make it out by 54 if you want. You'd be able to do that. I still decided to go to 55, but having a professional that kind of looked over everything and, and could talk to me about some of the things that maybe I hadn't thought about. Turns out I, I hadn't really missed much. I mean, I was pretty on track, but having a third party verify that is, is money well spent. Yeah. I, uh, I recently saw just a really quick social media post from a gentleman named Peter Lazaroff, who's a kind of young up and coming, I think he's a CFA. So he's more on the investing side than maybe the planning side. But one of the things he said is like, just this, this kind of hidden value in doing what you did is what he called objectivity. Yeah. And the fact is, you know, Fritz, you're, you're so into your own personal situation as you should be, as we all hopefully should be. But sometimes it is nice to have a third party come in with fresh eyes, with no sort of personal relationship to you and just say, hey, I'm an objective third party here. Here's what I see. And yeah. maybe it's a little different than what you see. Yeah. And I, and I think the other the other value you can get, and not, not so much from a one-off, but why, in my mind, it justifies paying somebody to, to you know, help you on your financial planning is really more on the behavioral psychology side of it. If, if you panic in a down market, if you have total stress as market volatility, which is a reality, there's always market volatility. I was always like, hey, the market's down. Great. I'm going to increase my investments, right? I never worried about that, but human nature is to worry about it. And the worst thing you can do is sell after a downturn, right? And then you got to figure out when you're going to get back in and you lose the upturn and it, it's suicide. And having a professional guide you through those market downturns, if they make you really uncomfortable, can save you a ton of money over the long term, because that's when you'll get slaughtered. If you make a big mistake in your asset allocation due to market volatility, that's probably the biggest individual mistake people can make. And a professional will typically help you avoid making those kind of mistakes. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Every week, I send a quick free email to thousands of readers that shares three simple things. One, my new articles and podcasts. Two, the best financial content of the week from all over the internet. And three, a financial chart that explains some important concept in the news that week. It's a great primer to boost your financial know-how. But Jesse, I don't want another email. Well, this might not be for you. But I do hear you, which is why I make it very short, sweet, and full of only the essentials. While 18% of people who sign up eventually unsubscribe, and 13% of people who are signed up haven't opened it in the past three months, a whopping 66% of subscribers read my email at least once a month. They're enjoying it, and maybe you will too. You can subscribe for free on the homepage at bestinterest.blog. 
Again, that's a free, no strings attached subscription at bestinterest.blog. Because that's when you'll get slaughtered. If you make a big mistake in your asset allocation due to market volatility, that's probably the biggest individual mistake people can make. And a professional will typically help you avoid making those kind of mistakes. Exactly. Another quote that I recently heard is that behavioral finance is the last frontier in terms of if you look at the various services that a good financial planner will provide a client, like financial planning has been solved, right? Like we yeah. know what the tax code is. We know how spreadsheets work. There might be some complicated math involved, but there's nothing new happening there. Yeah. Portfolio management, diversification. We all know the studies on active versus passive management and and why sometimes, you know, why a certain stock or bond allocation makes sense. That math has been solved. But behavioral finance is something that, as far as we can tell, human brains will remain irrational for <laughs> yeah. from now until the end of time. Exactly. And there will always be a need for an objective, calm professional to step in and say, hey, now's not the time to panic. Yeah. And, and I, I guess the last thing I would think about on this side, one of the things that brought value to me doing this, I guess, just a confirmation that we were ready was for my spouse, right? She, she knew I was doing mm, this stuff mm-hmm. and, and she kind of pays the bills and I do the longer term stuff. It works well. But, you know, she trusts me and she's like, yeah, good. But, you know, getting confirmation from an expert brings confidence to those that aren't really managing it day to day as well. So there's, you know, you got to think about the relationship and the whole household, not just you as an individual if you're managing your investments. Totally. And that, that happens to me once in a while too. It happens to us. A DIYer will come to us and they say, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, yeah. just so you know, I've informed my spouse to come talk to you. So, you know, here's, here are my numbers. Here's my plan. Here's what I've done. Sometimes they, they want to sign on and work with us. Sometimes they just say like, as an FYI, if I get hit by a bus, you're going to get that next phone yeah. call. Yeah. And, and, and it's important to have that backup plan in place. So let's talk about that glide into retirement one more time. I love this quote from your book, Fritz. You encourage your readers to make a decision early in the process that you're going to approach retirement with optimism, curiosity, and gratitude. Real quick, can we dive into those those three words, optimism, curiosity, yeah. and gratitude? I know you've already you've already mentioned curiosity a couple times in this episode so far. Yeah, and and really this came from 3 months before I retired. I I wrote the 10 commandments of retirement. It's actually hanging on my wall back there. And and they were really kind of my guiding principles on how I wanted to live life in retirement. And the interesting thing is I looked as I thought through it and wrote the post and wrote the 10 commandments and and look at it even now 5 years later. The interesting thing to me is how many of those are mindset related and, and really having a positive mindset going into this, it, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, like many things in life, right? And, and the good thing is, though, all those, those three things you just mentioned, those are all mindset related items. And the mindset is something that for the most part, we have control over, right? We can choose to be negative or we can choose the glass is half empty, the glass is half full. It's your choice. And Making the decision that you're going to look at things from the optimistic and not Pollyanna unrealistic, but just choose to look for the good in life can go a long way, right? So that was kind of the basis for those for that quote. And then the, the specific things about curiosity, you've got to fill your time with things that bring you purpose and bring you, how are you going to find those, right? You, you, you're suddenly 100% responsible for it. You've always had somebody telling you since you were four or five years old. You've always had somebody telling you what to do and how to fill your day. Suddenly you're responsible for it. And 
the best way to do that is to listen to your curiosity, pursue things that interest you, take the first step. And I've got just a myriad of examples of, of people that have done that. And, and you just start. My blog is one. You know, I just started writing a blog just out of curiosity. And it's turned into a major purpose in my retirement. That purpose now is bringing fulfillment and reward and recognition and sense of purpose and all those things we talk about. But it all started with pursuing curiosity. You know, the other thing I would say about gratitude, you know, recognize if you're able to retire earlier than average, you're a very blessed person right? I mean, how can you not be thankful for that? And what I've found is as you make that transition from your working years to what am I going to do with my time, finding a way to take that time to help other people and, and be gracious that you're in a position where you don't need anybody else's help. But guess what? Now you're free. You can help other people. So we started a charity, my wife and I, and Freedom for Fido, we build fences for free for low-income families that have dogs on chains. And the reward of not only being outside with a group of volunteers doing the physical labor and having that sense of community of like-minded volunteers, but more importantly, seeing the help that you can, you know, inject in a community is rewarding beyond words. Again, that comes from the mindset and pursuing things and seeing where they lead. That's awesome, Fritz. That's awesome. You might know this by now, but my wife and I, we foster dogs. So we're big dog people. I, yeah, I saw that in your email. Yeah, I was going to mention it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. We're both yeah. dog guys. So yeah, that's cool. Well, first, this has been excellent. And I, I'd love to put a, a stamp on this. Last question for you. And it's very much in line with what we've been talking about. But I'm thinking about my my typical listener is probably in that 25 to 40 range. But that means that their parents are in that 50 to 70 range. So if you had one quick tip to give to a child of a pre-retiree and then a second quick tip to give to a child of a post-retiree, what would those tips be? Ooh, you know, I've done hundreds of podcasts and I've never had that question. That's a, that's, a, that's a very good question. The first thing that came to my mind when you said that is when I talked about depressed versus happy retirees, the chances of depression are four times higher if you're divorced than if you're married. Now, if you get remarried one time, the odds are the same. You're okay. But if you're, if you're divorced, the odds go up. What changes the odds for a divorced person is how strong their social network is. And as a child, you are a key piece of that social network for your parents. So number one, support them. You know, be encouraging, show an interest, ask them what they're going to be doing. You know, share a podcast with them. Say, hey, I just listened to this guy. You know, you might be interested in him. You know, share resources, help them find. They're struggling with the journey, whether they tell you about it or not. Everybody's anxious about retirement. So try to find a way to have that discussion with them. And the other thing is, you know, I'm thinking now more people that are into retirement, encourage whatever they're discovering and whatever they're, you know, experimenting with, encourage them to continue to pursue their dreams and, and live a great life. The other thing at, at some point as they start getting older, make sure you have the discussion with them about legacy and estate planning and things like that. A lot of kids don't. I had it with my dad before he passed, and it was very helpful because I heard directly from him what his wishes were. And after he passed, having his input on what you know he would like us to do with the estate and things like that gives you freedom after the fact to like we we built a uh, we built a, a warehouse. We bought four acres next to our property, and we bought a big barn. But I did that because I know my dad was saying, "Look, you're, I know you're financially set. If you receive any money from me, you might not. Right? We might spend it all. Who knows?" But if you get any money from me, I want you to spend it. I want you to do it for something that brings good purpose in your life. And, and hearing his voice in the back of my head, even after he was gone, 
was really helpful, you know, to help encourage you that that's an okay thing to do. That's what he would have liked. So have that discussion with them about their wishes for you, you know, after they're gone at some point. So yeah, stay engaged with them. If you've had arguments with them and you've kind of got a distraught relationship, get over it. You know, once they're gone, you're going to regret it if you don't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, bury the hatchet, find a way to make amends, take them out to a nice dinner and say, look, I know we've had some rough patches, but you know what? I really want to reestablish our relationship together because to a parent, there aren't too many things in life that matter more than your kids. And based on my experience, I've been a child and I've been a father. Parents probably love their kids more than the kids realize. So give your parents a break and and make the first step in reestablishing a rapport if, if it's, you know, got a week and, and make the effort to call them every week. Take the time. Yeah, I know it's a hassle. It's Sunday. I'm off work. I don't want to talk to mom and dad. Talk to mom and dad. Take the time to call them. After you listen to this podcast, call mom and dad and just touch base with them. It, it's worth it. I love that answer, Fritz. On a couple of the estate planning things, listeners, you can go back to episode 55. The title was Conversations with Aging Parents. It was yep. all about that kind of topic. But uh, I really like that, Fritz, where you know most of those tips, most of those conversations had to do with the non-financial side of retirement. Yep. And that really is such an important thing. So- Fritz Gilbert of the Retirement Manifesto. Thank you for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. Hey, Jesse, I really appreciate it. Love your show. I love what you're doing. And I'm really honored to be on it. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.